This Bible study podcast is a presentation of Sunset Presbyterian Church. For more information, log on to our website at www.sunsetpres.org. Well, good morning, ladies. This week we looked, well, last, the last couple of weeks we've looked at Abraham, and this week our study took us to the story of Jacob. Now, Jacob was the third link in God's plan to start a nation. It goes Abraham, Isaac, then Jacob. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are known as the three major patriarchs, and their stories take up the majority of the whole book of Genesis, covers their stories. This is, now, this isn't based upon their personal character, but rather on the character of God. These men were chosen not because of who they were, but because of who God is. They were all men who earned the grudging respect and even fear of their peers. They were wealthy and powerful, and yet capable of lying and deceit and selfishness. They were not the perfect heroes we might have expected. Instead, they were just like us, trying to please God, but often falling short. Now, a little bit about Jacob. He lived in the land of Canaan. He was a shepherd and a livestock owner. He had a mother named Rebecca, father named Isaac. His brother was Esau. His father-in-law was Laban. His wives were Rachel and Leah. You guys all remember that story from the first study, the dysfunctional of those two and the competition they had. And they both had maidservants called Billa and Zilpah. His offspring, he ended up having 12 sons and one daughter named Dinah. His 12 sons, what's interesting about Jacob, his 12 sons eventually grew into the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. And that's how the book of Genesis launches those 12 tribes in Genesis chapter 50. So Jacob's story is told in Genesis chapter 25 through 50. So his story is actually told in half, in, in its entirety, and takes up a half of the, the book of Genesis. But this week, our study focused, the three um, lessons that we did focused on chapter 25 and chapter 27. And in fact, chapter 25, it covered Jacob's birth and the deception of Esau for his birthright, and then the deception of Isaac to receive Esau's blessing. So if you want to, if you wouldn't mind turning your Bibles to chapter 25, I'd like to begin by reading the story together, starting with verse 19. And I'll give you a minute to do that. Can you all find it? Just kidding. (laughs) It's the first book. (laughs) Okay. At least it's one of those easy ones. Okay, Genesis 25, chapter, or chapter 25, verse 19. This is the account of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, from Padan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. Now, isn't that interesting? Sarah was barren, Rebekah was barren, and Jacob's future wife, Rachel, would be barren. It's interesting that the patriarchs, the ones who God blessed, and said, your, your descendants will be more abundant than the stars, that each of them were barren. 
Again, it points to God's provision. It's only through God that the promise could be upheld. Inside, Re- inside Rebecca, the babies jostled around within her, and she went to the Lord, and she said, Why is this happening to me? And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. So God's basically saying to Rebecca, he's saying, hey, this is bigger than, what's go- than what you think it is. This isn't just about your small story. What's going on is a larger story. There's two nations within your tummy. The other thing that God points out to her is that he's not bound by human tradition. See, in the Hebrew culture, the firstborn son always received what was called the family birthright. And this was a a position of privilege and great responsibility. And in it, it became a high ranking, and he would be the, the next leader in the family after the father. The firstborn had authority over his younger siblings, and the birthright also granted the firstborn double the inheritance of what was to be received by other family members. So upon the father's death, the firstborn would receive also a blessing, which would be a spiritual blessing. And that would indicate his spiritual inheritance on top of his material inheritance. So in the Hebrew culture, when God is, he's kind of rocking the cradle or upsetting the cart, he's saying, no, in this case, the firstborn is going to serve the secondborn. The elder will serve the younger. Again, he's saying, I'm sovereign. I have something going on here. This is part of my story. So in verse 24, it continues. When the time came for Rebecca to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first came out and was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. That just sounds frightening to me. I don't know about the rest of you. (laughs) I would be scared. But they named him Esau, which meant Harry. After this, his brother came out with his hands grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob, which means grabber. Or in some context, taker of what is not his. And Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. So first, you've got to ask, why, in some contexts, you understand why it would be named, why Jacob would be named Grabber, but why would he be named Deceiver? Why would God's chosen one in his line be named Deceiver? And then you wonder, was this name, did it, was it prophetic? Did it um, acknowledge an area of God knew about his heart that he would struggle with? Perhaps that was the reason he was named Deceiver? Or would this, in fact, determine his behavior? Would this label, would this name determine the the kind of person that Jacob would become? Well, the story continues in verse 27. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. Now, when I envision them, I think of, like, brother versus brother. I think of maybe Jonathan and Drew, where Jonathan's the more... Um, he's the more tool savvy and he's always out pounding the nails and doing the hard labor and Drew's all dressed up in his nice suit and kind of hanging out within the houses and more sociable and stays closer 
closer in the area of the um, of his family. So that's yeah, Jacob versus Esau. This is my modern take on these two. <laughs> you might want to add a little more hair to to Jonathan. But it says Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, was loved by Esau. And then it says, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now here you see the veil pulled up on their family, and we see the first huge element of dysfunction within this family. We see favoritism. Now favoritism defined is a practice of giving unfair preferential treatment to one person or a group at the expense of another. And the, the consequences of favoritism are devastating to a family. I was Googling some websites, psychological websites, and one of them struck me. There was an article about favoritism, and people were invited to comment. And just as I was perusing it, there was over 100 responses to it in the pain in each of the child's um, comment area was excruciating. You could read just their pain of not being chosen by their parent, not being loved, that having another sibling loved over them. And these comments went on and on. I think I counted, I kind of, I tried to count. It's like, there was like 120 all in a row, a string of comments. But favoritism divides a family. And favoritism, the hard thing about it, it's often denied by the one who's doing it. And I saw that in these comments over and over again. The person who was, who was playing favorites did not recognize it. And we see in the Bible that favoritism is a generational sin. We saw that Abraham favored Isaac. We saw that Isaac favored Esau. We saw that Rebekah favored Jacob. And if you read to the end of Genesis, you'll see that Jacob favored Joseph. Civil, civil, <clears throat> excuse me, sibling rivalry is tough enough to navigate, especially when two children seem as different as night and day as Jacob and Esau. But then adding the cruel dysfunction of favoritism helps us understand why these two brothers were even more at odds. Verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country. He was famished, and he said to Jacob, Quick, Let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. Jacob replied, First, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and he drank and then got up and left. Esau despised his birthright. Now, Jacob took advantage of his brother's situation. He was coming home from a long, hard day, most likely physically exhausted, emotionally exhausted, mentally exhausted, and he came home to the smell of a wonderfully home-cooked meal, and he was starving. Not literally starving, I'm guessing, but starving. And I don't know if you, any of you that have kids, my kids come into the house every day around 5 o'clock, Mom, I'm starving. Can I have a cookie? No, wait for dinner. Mom, I can't wait for dinner. I'm going to starve. 
Now, I don't know if that's what Esau was like. I imagine him like my little boys, but in here, he was willing to quickly go for um, instant gratification. He didn't weigh the consequences. Have you ever made a short-sighted deal that you later regretted? Have you felt like you needed something at an instant and gave up something much more precious and much more valuable for that? Esau did not value his birthright, and he sold it for a bowl of stew. But also Jacob took advantage of his brother. I'm thankful in my marriage. I'm very impulsive, and I'm so thankful because my husband is the more level-headed one because I would often make decisions that weren't always the wisest. And my, in my family, I'm known for that. A couple summers ago, I, we were at Sun Lakes Park, and there was a high cliff um, next to where we were boating, and I saw some kids jumping off of it, and I thought, oh, that looks cool. And I was thinking, I want my boys to be brave and do things like that. So I said to my sister, hey, let's climb up there and jump off that cliff. So she goes, okay. So we proceeded to go up there. We got to the very top. It was about 50 feet up over the water. And um, I literally was standing there shaking, but I'm still thinking, I want to show my boys that I'm brave. And I I literally peed my pants. (laughs) And then I jumped. And when I jumped, my legs went out a little bit, and I landed on my back end, and I ended up having a, a compression Um, of my spine (laughs) and bruising my whole back end and my sister looked down on me and she's like how was it and I'm like don't do it (laughs) so she went down to another level but again here it was it was me thinking I wanted to show my brother my boys how to be brave and making a, a rash decision an impulsive decision and my loving husband picked me up in the boat and pampered me gave me lots of Advil And I was kind of done for the rest of the vacation. But my boys did learn a lesson there. They learned a very good lesson. (laughs) Wasn't the one I was hoping to teach them, but... And it's a favorite story of how I ruined that vacation, too. So... Okay, now looking next to Genesis 27, 1 through 13. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see... He called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I am now an old man and don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare for me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat, so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Now Rebekah was listening as Isaac spoke to his son. And when Esau left to the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, Bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat, so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat, so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, But my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a man with smooth skin. 
What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. Interesting here that Jacob's concerned about appearances more than character, that that's his concern, that he'd be construed as tricking. His mother said to him, my son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Go and get them for me. So Isaac passes on the covenant blessing to Jacob, unbeknownst to him. Rebecca's plan and Jacob's plan of deceiving Isaac works. Rebecca has just taken things into her own hands. And in the end, Jacob and Rebecca got what they wanted. Jacob received the spiritual blessing, the blessing of inheritance, of spiritual inheritance. But both son and mother paid a high price for their deception. In later chapters, we see that Jacob later had to flee because Esau was so upset and distraught that he said he would kill Jacob. And because of the deceit that these two conspired in, Jacob spent the next 20 years of his life in Haran, and he never saw his mother again. So again, we ask the question, why would God choose someone like Jacob, who was so deceptive to carry the blessing? Why would he choose someone like that? Why would he choose someone so um, clever and willing to throw his brother under the bus and uncaring, someone who would want to steal? But what we see here, again, and I love what Pastor Mike said on Sunday. He said, whenever you're reading the Old Testament, ask yourself, how does this point to Jesus? And what you see here is this points to Jesus. This points to the covenant. This points to God's promise, that his promise is one way. It's not dependent on our performance and ability to be righteous. God's promise is not based upon our perfection. It's unconditional. It's unilateral. It comes one, day, one way down from God to us. It's a gift solely based upon him and his character, not upon us and our actions. This is radical to us. We want to earn our salvation. We want to earn our, his approval. We've been taught to earn. But God is saying, no, I'm going to show you a different way. You can't earn this. I love you just as you are in your fallen state. So as I said, in chapter 27, Esau, Esau is enraged, and he plots to kill Jacob for stealing his birthright and blessing. And Rebecca knows that his life's at risk. She again devises another plan she hasn't learned yet. And she sends, um, she convinces Isaac to send Jacob to her, her brother Laban in Haran. Interesting enough, that's where Abraham had traveled 150 years earlier. And we leave the story with Jacob, the homebody, the one who never wanted to, flee, to leave the comfort of home, who enjoyed hanging around the tents, fleeing, headed out into the wilderness to escape the wrath of his brother. And we see that while Jacob's agenda was to flee and to go for survival, 
we'll see that God's agenda was to reorient his heart. I want to ask you, can you relate to Jacob and Rebecca? Have you ever attempted to grab onto something for security? We all have an inheritance. We're promised an inheritance. God has promised us. We have the Bible that tells us what we are meant for, that we are his sons and daughters, that we are his beloved and his chosen. But are there ways that we grab onto that in the here and now? False ways that we try to look for it and hold on to? Maybe in position, authority, influence, in our families, in our workplace, influence in our friendships. This isn't new, this idea of grabbing. I think we all have a bit of Jacob in us. And it started in the garden. Think of Adam and Eve. They went and they grabbed an apple from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They didn't trust God's plan, even though he had told them that he had a great plan for them, that his plan was this beautiful garden for them to dwell with him. They still doubted him and thought they knew best. Or we can even look at Sarah, who God told Abraham and Sarah that they would give them a gift of a child. Yet she decided that she, God <laughs> couldn't do it on his own, and she had to work the plan herself. And she had to give Abraham, her husband, her, her um, maidservant Hagar, to sleep with so that they would have a child. Ladies, we love to control I know I do, and I'm always trying to grab on to the plan that I think will make me secure or make my life work or make my kids work. So in reality, I'm thankful that God chose someone like Jacob, someone who had those tendencies to need, that needed to control because I can relate to him and I see myself in him. And thankfully, God takes us on a journey so that we learn to let go of what we think will guarantee a good life. Learn to let go and trust him and grab onto him instead. And our lesson will go more into that next week. In closing, I want to talk a little bit about labels. So we label everything in our society you go into the grocery store, you see non-fat, gluten-free, lean, organic, reduced fat, sodium, sugar-free diet. Our politics, we've got Democrats, Republican, Independents, Tea Parties, um, Green Party, you name it. Religions, we have liberal, conservative, Methodist, Protestant, Baptist, Catholic, Presbyterian. We love our labels, and it helps us summarize what something is all about. It helps give us an idea of what's inside my boys label each other. I often hear them say to each other, Connor, you're so lazy. Or Braden, you're stupid. Riley, you're annoying. And I have to tell you, as a mother, my heart cringes when I hear those words. And I always ask them each to apologize directly to their brother. And then I charge them each a dollar every time they use those words. <laughs> but I know that those words have the potential to stick 
those labels have the potential to stick and come to the surface later in life. I came across this quote from James Smith, and I'll read it to you, and it's up here on the slide. You can read it along with me. It says, identity is a never-ceasing issue for most of us. We want so badly to think well of ourselves, to believe we are valued and important, but on our own, all we have are opinions from others and from ourselves. We tell ourselves we are good or bad, and we spend each day searching for some evidence to prove it only to have to do it over again the next day. The verdict never comes in. Our egos are always on trial, but the spirit witnesses with our spirit telling us we are Abba's child in whom he is well pleased, not because of our performance or our accomplishments, our holiness or virtue, but because we are sacred beings of invaluable worth, and I would add made in his image. Jessica Legrone writes in the study on page 41, we are not doomed to be named by our past. No matter what we have been called or how we have been treated, God longs to speak names over us that communicate his acceptance and delight in who we are. And then she points out some of those names to us. She points out mighty warrior, called God's servant, chosen, God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good work. God's temple, God's spirit dwells in us. We're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his special possession. These are the names that we can own. These are the names that our Abba Father has given us. I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with, but I want to share this short story with you. It's a book called You Are Special by Max Licato. I'm not sure if any of you have read this. It's a children's book. And a friend gave this to me when I had my boys, and I just adore this book. And I've got some pictures of it. I couldn't find the actual book at home. It's somewhere in the disaster of my boys' rooms, but um, I found some pictures on, the, on Google last night and put them together for you. So in this story, Ponicello is the character, the main character, and he's this little green guy, and he goes around the village, and in his village, what he notices is each day as he goes around the village, everyone's collecting either dots or stars, and they stick these dots or stars on each other all day long. They walk around sticking a dot, a dot. If someone does something special, they get a star. Oh, you did that wonderfully, you get a star. But no, you, you get a dot. You get a dot. And each day, he collects more and more dots. Well, one day, as he's headed to work, he notices that this one girl is standing there, and she doesn't have a single dot or star on her entire body. And he's totally fascinated. He's like, how could that be? And then he watched her for a while, and he noticed that people tried to give her dots and stars, but they didn't stick. So he went over to her and he asked her, what, what's your secret? How come you don't have any dots or stars? And she says, well, each day I go up to my friend Eli's house and I spend time with him. And he says, Eli? He says, where does he live? Can I go see Eli? And she says, of course. So the next day, 
Ponticello goes up and he visits Eli. He knocks on the door and he hears this boisterous welcome. He comes in and the room is warm and inviting and Eli is sitting at his desk working, creating something, some new beautiful creation. And Ponticello sits next to him. And he says, how did you know my name? And he goes, I've always known your name. And he goes, can I hang out with you? And he goes, of course you can hang out with me. You can hang out with me anytime. I love to hang out with you, Ponticello. So for the next few weeks, Ponticello goes, and he sits with Eli. He hangs out with them. Sometimes they just look at each other and smile. Sometimes he watches Eli work. Sometimes they have deep conversations. But sometimes it's just purely just hanging out together. And Ponticello says, Eli says, how do I get these stickers not to stick? And Eli responds to him. He goes, the stickers only stick if they matter to you. But he said, the more you trust in my love, the less you will care about their stickers. And that day, as Ponticello left Eli's house, he noticed a sticker drop to the ground. See, the more we spend time with our maker, the more we understand that he created us exactly how we are, that he knows us, that he loved us, that he designed us. The stickers, those old labels, they don't stick and they fall to the ground. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for this story of Jacob. I thank you for that he was not perfect, yet you blessed him, Lord, in a mighty way. You chose him to be part of your kingdom purposes. And I thank you, Lord, that we can each relate to that as we try to grab and hold on to things in this life to make us feel secure and happy and content and safe and protected and successful, Lord. And I thank you that you gently take us on a journey in which we get to encounter you and be with you. And as we spend time with you, Lord, you gently pry our hands open, or sometimes you abruptly pry them open and ask us to release what we are holding on to and to trust you. Lord, I pray for each of these ladies here I pray that the stickers, whether they're dots or stars, that they would not stick. In Jesus' name, amen.